So, just begin by reviewing a bit uh, where we are. Everybody knows what the Buddha taught, right? What did the Buddha teach? Hey, there you go. Okay. Yeah. And he taught this in the form of uh, what's called Four Noble Truths. And those four are. Pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. Pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. Yep, that's good. That's the first one. Suffering is the result of craving, and beyond that, even the sense of separation that comes from thinking we're a self. Yes, that's right. The cause of suffering is craving, resistance to what it is, wanting things to be different than they are, and misunderstanding the way things really are. What's the third truth? There's a horizon. To use Chris's language. There's an end to suffering. There's an end to suffering. And there's a whole lot of less less sufferings along the way before you get to the end of suffering. Right. And the fourth truth? The, there is an eightfold path that leads to the end of suffering, permanent, complete end of suffering. So that eightfold path is divided up into three parts, which are wisdom, virtue, and meditation. Yes, wisdom, virtue, and meditation. Right. And right now, what we've been talking about lately has been the virtue part of the eightfold path, and it has. Uh, there are three eighths of the paths. And what are those three that make up the virtue part of the path? Right speech, right action, right livelihood. That's right, right? Right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And we begin to understand right speech through first uh, exploring four types of wrong speech. You remember what those are? Idle speech, that's one of them. Gossip. Well, idle speech and gossip are actually, those are lumped together. Yeah. Right. Divisive. Divisive speech, yes. False. False speech, yeah. Harsh speech. And harsh speech, yeah. So false speech, divisive speech, harsh speech, and idle speech and gossip. So we've talked about those quite a bit. And of course, a great way to learn to be mindful is to pick any one of those to begin with and eventually extend it to the others and monitor your speech to see when you're engaging in uh, those different kinds of wrong speech. And when you begin to become more aware of those occasions that you engage in wrong speech, then you can start asking yourself, well, why? Why am I doing that? each time. And so just by simply, by, by focusing on different kinds of wrong speech, you become more mindful by asking yourself why you're doing this, you come to understand yourself a lot better, and then of course you can start trying not to do that and see what happens. Now, we made the point that not engaging in wrong speech isn't really the same as as right speech. It's only a part of right speech. It's definitely right speech to not engage in wrong speech. <laughs> but there's more to it than that, which is what's the opposite of, of uh, harsh speech? Yeah, speaking kindly in ways that are uh, beneficial to people. And the opposite of divisive speech. Unifying speech. Speech that brings people together, that promotes love and harmony and cooperation, uh, goodwill between people. And uh, the opposite of false speech. Speaking the truth. And using using the truth in ways that are helpful and beneficial. Uh, the Buddha, when asked about it, said, well, 
Just because something's true is not good enough reason to say it. It should also be helpful. And even though something is true, and even though it's helpful, it also must be spoken uh, in the right way at the right time. You know, so the, the timing, the circumstances of, of how and when you speak the truth is very important part of it. So, so this, this gives us a, a good idea of uh, right speech, and I think over the last little week, few weeks, people have been hopefully practicing right speech, just exploring, learning about themselves, and I think we've had some good discussions. So now it's time for us to move on to right action. Well, maybe before we do, is there anything to do with right speech that in the process of your practice and exploration, that it, uh, questions that have come up or something that you'd like to hear us address more? Yeah. When you do speak in, in a not right way, you know, it's just stumbling learning, um, and you intentionally or unintentionally, well, hopefully unintentionally, and you can find some way to figure it out, like, how does one recover and, and sort of abet the damage from, from wrong speech? Well, how you do it is going to depend on the circumstance, what you said and the circumstances, but that you try to do something about it, that, that's extremely important. Uh, I mean, it's very important that you become aware of it and that you try not to do it in the future. But if there's something that you can do to correct for it, to make amends, then you absolutely should do that. But it's going to depend on the circumstances. Some circumstances, there's probably nothing you can do at all. And if there, but most of the time, there is something you can do. But whatever it is, it's going to depend very much on the circumstances. So did you have something more specific in mind? Oh, um, losing temper, using really harsh words, and, and wanting to apologize and, and, and sort of make amends and not, not let things fester. Yeah, that's very important, to, to apologize, and to do whatever you can to make amends. So if you know your buttons are going to get pushed, is it okay to stay out of that environment, or is there some more to do to stop being so easily provoked? Yeah, well, of course, it's, you know, if, if you know your buttons are going to get pushed, and if it is reasonably feasible to avoid putting yourself in that situation, absolutely. But that's... Only, only part of the answer is sometimes you can't avoid that. Sometimes you try to avoid it and it happens anyway. Uh, and the most important thing is to, uh, to try to change yourself in such a way that you don't, well, first of all, you don't react that way when your buttons are pushed, but ultimately, that you don't have those buttons to be pushed. See, that's part of coming to understand why you react the way you do. what's driving you to uh, speak the way you do in, in those situations. And the only way that you're going to change yourself so that you don't have those buttons available to be pushed is to understand the inner dynamics of why you're responding and getting to the root of that in a way that allows you to change. But certainly, uh, yeah, if it's possible to avoid putting yourself in that situation, you certainly should. But never leave it there. You'd like to get to the place where it doesn't matter what anybody else does or says. You're not going to lose it. <clears throat> okay, well, a couple of other points to make about this. In the, in the exploration of how we use speech, <clears throat> what you would have discovered is the, the incredible importance of speech and language to everything to do with uh, human existence. 
And so it's really pervasive. So all of the things that you could focus on in terms of your behaviors, virtuous or non-virtuous, it makes sense to begin with speech because it, it's a part of everything we do. Another thing that you will have discovered is that there's nothing cut and dried about this. There's not a set of things, thou shalt not do this, and a set of things that, that these are good things that you should always do. So in examining right speech, hopefully what you learn is that in everything to do with virtue, what it comes down to is avoiding causing harm to the extent that you can avoid causing any unnecessary harm. And so wrong speech is speech that causes harm, causes pain, suffering, that you could have avoided by either not speaking or speaking differently. And, and, and in that case, not speaking or speaking differently, of course, would be great speech. The other part of it is that not only is it avoiding causing harm, but if there is any way that you can somehow reduce the pain, the suffering, the, the injury that's already present as a part of life in this world, than to do that. So right speech means using speech in ways that are beneficial to other people. That's why the opposite of divisive speech is things that can lead people to cooperation and harmony and love. Uh, the opposite of false speech is, is speaking truth in such a way that other people learn and grow from it and so forth. Yeah. And just to mention that you said speech to others, but also internal speech, the way that we talk to ourselves could be very harsh, and there's also a chance to yeah. apologize and make amends with kindness internally. You're absolutely right, and thank you for bringing that up, because yes, we talk to ourselves more than anybody else, right? <laughs> <laughs> and we tend to believe in an awful lot of what we tell ourselves. <laughs> so... It's really important that what we tell ourselves is, is true. And uh, a lot of your self-talk could be pretty harsh and divisive. Uh, and of course, an awful lot of it, a lot of it can be idle gossip, too. <laughs> so, yeah, there's a whole domain of right speech that you need to apply to yourself. And to the degree that you've spoken poorly to yourself and of yourself and to yourself and everything else. Very important to make amends. Forgive yourself. <laughs> yeah. Do all the other things that, that you can. Okay, let's move on to right action. Right action, we can get a foothold on right action in the same way by starting out with what's wrong action. And uh, wrong actions can be it can fall into some general groups. Uh, uh, first of all, killing or harming other beings. That's a wrong action, right? The second one is taking what's not freely given. Uh, it refers to stealing, and it also refers to a lot of more subtle things as well. But taking what's not freely given. And then a third general category is usually described as not engaging in sexual misconduct. But when we get to talking about that one, I'm going to expand the scope of that quite a bit. Cover a lot more. So, wrong actions are harming, killing, stealing, and sexual misconduct. Does that mean that as somebody's eulogy, you can say, they lived a good life, never killed anybody, never stole anything, never uh, raped or committed adultery, right? That's, that's a good life. What better, what better can you expect? <laughs> Not very realistic. No, it, it gives us it gives us a way to. It's like with right speech. It, it gives us a toehold into understanding. So we look at 
killing and harming. And we go through a lot of the same thought processes that we did with the different forms of wrong speech. So, killing and harming. The first thing is to try to become aware of the things that you do that involve killing and harming other beings. Take the killing part of it. You may not have killed any people lately. <laughs> that doesn't mean you haven't done some killing, right? So you have to examine that. You first of all want to become aware of you 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 want if you are by any chance in a kind of mental state where you mindlessly kill, then you can use this as a way of becoming more mindful. Do you swat mosquitoes when they land on your arm? <coughs> uh, do you put out bait for rats and mice? I mean, there's all kinds of different ways. As a matter of fact, we're, we're, we're killing all the time. It's just most of the time it is pretty mindless. But um, becoming aware of it is an important first step. Now, does that mean that thou shalt not kill, period, anything, anytime? Certainly doesn't mean that. Yeah. If uh, if you saw a, a toddler fascinated by that coiled rattlesnake in front of her and reaching for her, would you kill a snake? If it was the only way to prevent the inevitable from happening, I certainly would. There's all kinds of situations like that. And, you know, you find that termites are eating the whole north wall of your house. <laughs> what do you do about it? You hide the evidence and quickly sell the house to somebody else. <laughs> and this is just... We're just looking at the killing part of it. There's the harming part, too. Harming other sentient beings. So it's, we're going to come to the same thing. That it's not black and white. It's not cut and dry. Living in this world involves killing and harming. So if you, if you can, first of all, become aware to the extent that your living in this world involves killing and harming, that's a big step forward. Then, if you can bring to that mindfulness uh, the investigation of why you're doing it, which can involve, is this the best way to solve the problem? Is it the only way to solve the problem? I mean, even with the, the toddler and the rattlesnake example, uh, there could be other ways to solve the problem, just because you have your handy 45 there, you know, <laughs> expert marksman doesn't mean it's the only way to keep the child from being bit by the wrong thing. It means becoming mindful and looking at the options and considering why you choose what you choose to do. Once again, I'll point out, this doesn't mean that you've got to stop yourself from doing what you're doing. The first step is understanding why you're doing what you're doing. And if there are alternatives, why are you choosing that particular course of action rather than other courses of action? Understanding your motivation. That's all part of the mindfulness part of it. Then, when you become aware of the thing that you're doing, and as you become more aware of the, your real reasons and motivations for what you're doing, then you can start making better decisions about whether to go ahead and do them or not, or do something else. And that's that's a kind of that's definitely a kind of right action. And what you're going to find is that there's a lot of instances where you don't need to kill or you don't need to harm, and uh, sometimes you may do it anyway because there's some aversion or hatred, you really don't like spiders, so I'm going to squash it anyway. Uh, laziness, you know, yeah, I could catch the scorpion in a cup and carry it outside, but, you know, it's hot out there, and 
I don't want to, and so on and so forth. And you come to understand your motives, you'll change. You will change, and that's the whole important part of this. But that's not the end of it. Because really, this is just, you know, it, it's about right action. It's just about, not just about not acting wrongly. Uh, what would be the opposite of killing or causing harm? Protecting. Protecting, yes, absolutely. Protecting. Comforting. Easing the pain of others. Helping yeah. others. Somebody else, is, somebody else is in harm's way, and you do something to remove them from harm. That's the whole other side of right action. Becoming loving and generous. So, this is the new homework. Don't stop doing the right speech homework. Keep doing the right speech homework. But now that you have a little while, and you're getting good at it, you can start extending it into the right action homework. And the first part of right action homework is Practice becoming aware of the injury, of the killing and the injury that you inflict on other beings in this world. Not with the idea that you have to catch yourself and stop, but just to realize what you're doing. And then look at your motives, come to understand why. Using what we talked about earlier, you know, the wisdom part of the path, the right understanding and right intention. That's where you bring this in and you understand that those things that you do that are not right action, when you look to see why you do them, you'll find it's out of desire and aversion in some form or another. And it's rooted in ignorance. It's rooted in an attachment to yourself. It's rooted in your sense of separation from everything of seeing, you're saying this is self and that is other. Itself is more important than other. And it doesn't mean going the other way and saying other is more important than self, therefore let me lay down and you can walk on me. It's, it's seeing that there is that, that separation is an illusion. And so that's, that's the right action. Questions about that? Okay. What about consuming food, animals? It seems like a really well. Now that's that's something that you, you know, if you start practicing this, uh, a question is going to come up, and I'll tell you the answer right away. You cannot eat without causing harm to other beings. Okay, and you cannot eat without causing harm to that being. You have to make a choice. And it's not like there's a right and wrong choice. It's your process of learning. Okay? And you're going to have to explore it. Actually, the question of eating really comes in, that's part of the topic of right livelihood. So the three were right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And uh, everything you do to live in this world, including eating, is right livelihood. And so when you're looking at eating, you have to look at how that fits in with these other kinds of right and wrong action. <coughs> and if you recognize that you, you cannot live without causing harm to other beings, then you realize you've really got to develop wisdom. And you have to you have to develop an inner moral compass. And then you have to decide how you're going to use that compass to navigate through the difficult territory that involves being a living organism in a world of other living organisms. What about suicide? What about which? Suicide. Suicide, yes. What about it? Well, a while back, 
my dad found out that he had something that was going to paralyze him all the way. And he was going to be locked in. He was going to be in there, but <clears throat> unable to move or care for himself in any way. And he went fairly far down that path. And just before the door finally closed on his ability to move at all, he opened his anticubital space and took himself out. Well, the suicide is the same as with everything else. You have to evaluate the impact of what you're doing and why you're doing it. If somebody was to say, oh, suicide's wrong, no, we should have been suicide, I, we could find a lot of arguments against that. I understand. And if somebody was to say, well, if I'm tired of living, there's no reason why I should have to. But if you commit suicide, it has a lot of impact. First of all, somebody's got to clean up the nest on the floor afterwards. And then there's all the other nests and stuff on that. Like the suicide booths in science fiction? Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, we, we, we could hypothesize ways to make it easier. Yeah, it doesn't really matter how tidy you are, you've still done that. That's right. And, and then, you know, um, there's people that care about you and the impact that it has on them. There's all these kinds of things. You, you've got to take it all into account. <clears throat> and then, once you've taken it all into account and made the best decision that you're capable of, it's not my place to judge that you were right or wrong. Right. Although suicide is a little bit different than all of these other things, almost anything else you do, you can do your best, and afterwards you can recognize, oh, that's a mistake, and you can learn from it, and you can do better next time. Suicide doesn't fall into that category. In the case of the killing of other beings, if you go down that path and you say, oh, that, that wasn't the right thing to do, oops, um, it, it's very hard to undo that one. That's very hard to undo that. It absolutely is, which doesn't mean that that you can't do anything. It just means you can't undo that action. But the learning seems, the learning that it was a mistake seems fairly trivial in comparison to having made it. Well, but it's the, the learning that it was a mistake, if it keeps you from making the same mistake, is huge compared to killing, going and killing somebody else and somebody else and somebody else. But every death is different. Yeah. Now, there is a, there is a, uh, story. One of the suttas is about uh, a fellow by the name of Angulimala. Uh, Amala means uh, it's like a string of beads, like a necklace. And Anguli means finger. And so his name was, or the name he's known by in the suttas is his finger necklace. And don't well, maybe I'll explain why that is. He. He actually believed that this was a spiritual act, and that by you know killing enough people and severing their fingers to get a anguli mala of a hundred and eight fingers would somehow bring him some kind of sort of reward, some holy spiritual reward. Anyway, he met the Buddha, uh, laid in wait for the Buddha couldn't catch the Buddha, and anyway, eventually he ended up talking to the Buddha instead of killing him and realizing the error of his ways and everything. So, but he'd already killed a lot of people. But he learned the error of his ways and really sincerely regretted what he's done and what he'd done. And there was no way in the world he was going to kill anybody else after that. So anyway, when, when the local folks realized that there was this serial killer Angulimala in their midst. They wanted to come and, you know, do what people do. <laughs> but the Buddha protected it. So, you know, there's, there's nothing that's so bad that you can't learn from it and change as a result of it. Angulimala became a, a Buddha. So, yeah, you, you, you want to learn from your mistakes. You're going to make mistakes. 
accept it. Don't don't demand perfection of yourself. <clears throat> it's a cruel cruel thing to do to yourself. But expect yourself to learn from your mistake. Don't it, don't ever catch yourself denying that you've made a mistake or rationalizing it or refusing to learn from it. We do that all the time. All the time. It is the natural response to having made a mistake is to find a way to rationalize it. Well, it wasn't my fault. Mm -hmm. Excuse it. Or deny it. Well, it wasn't a mistake. It was, you know, figure out some way to say, you know, this really was the right thing to do. That's what we do all the time. Or we just hide from it. Oh, I don't want to think about that. I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to know about it. You know, there, I haven't remembered it for a whole week. <laughs> Must be gone, right? No. Learn from your mistake. I mean, in a sense. Doesn't that kind of argue that there is a right answer? Is there what? Doesn't that kind of argue that there will always be a right answer? For you, there will always be a right answer. And when you start to get good at this, some of your mistakes are what you thought were right answers. For you, there will always be, in every situation, for you, there's a right answer. And sometimes it's really obvious what the right answer was and that you did something wrong. Other times, you thought you did the right thing, but if you pay attention, you'll realize that, oh, that was a mistake. But at the time you did it, it was the right answer. So, you know, yes, there's always a right answer. There is always a right answer for you at that time. But the right answer today might not be the right answer tomorrow. So we're not talking about ultimate right answers here. So that's why you're here. You're here to learn. And if you don't learn, then you're wasting your time. And the way we learn is by making mistakes. So, do your best not to make mistakes. But when you do, don't deny them, don't avoid them, don't try to forget about them, don't rationalize them away. Learn from them. And then you're doing what you came here to do. You didn't come here to be perfect and never make mistakes. You came here to learn from your mistakes. And the right answer is the best answer that you can find at, at, at the time. And it might be tomorrow your right answer, it might be the wrong answer. But that just means you're wiser than you were today. Yes? It seems to me that Chulagal said that, that what you just said reminds me of the whole deep and interesting um, issue of dependent origination, where every moment has its own relativity. Yesterday is different from today. New things are arising, other things are falling away. So when you're thinking about right action, all these things, it's it's and everything is in process, which is part of this, it's a very big picture. Um, that you know, every moment is going to have all this nuance in what is right and what is wrong is going to be relative to what's going on right now. And I think also it has the aspect of compassion. That the decisions that someone else is making, what they're saying, what they're doing, they have behind them a whole lineage of horizons mm -hmm. and um, in our internal universe. And so it seems like right action, particularly right action at this moment, is this huge picture about relativity. Yes. Uh, dependent origination, for those of you that aren't familiar with the idea, it's basically the universal law of causality. Everything, without exception, is due to causes and conditions. And absolutely everything is a cause and a condition for other things. If there's nothing... There's no event, nothing that doesn't have future consequences for everything else. 
So it's a universal law of causality. Um, it's also a principle of interconnectedness. Absolutely everything is interconnected, is causally interconnected. That the separations, you know, when we look at something and say A causes B, we've just artificially in our mind trimmed out 99% of the other causality and said, okay, well, this is a result of this and this, and these two or three things were the conditions that were necessary. Uh, and that's very artificial and contrived. When you examine any situation closely, you find that everything's the result of everything, and everything's the cause of everything else. So interconnectedness. So it's causality, it's interconnectedness. You, as an individual, are the result of causes and conditions. And everything you do creates you in the future. Your actions, your thoughts, and your actions, and your words right now are the causes and conditions for the, the person who's in your skin tomorrow for who they are and what they are. Because we're all interconnected, these things that we're talking about right speech, right action, everything else. You know, they're not just things that you do to somebody else. They're things that you do to yourself. And it's not just you, this self that you imagine that you are, that's responsible and guilty and therefore should beat up for it, be beat up for it. It's a part of this whole evolving, totally interconnected process. And so... You need to understand that, and that's what that's what these practices are really leading you towards. Everything you do has consequences, and there's not a self and another. When you do something, your action has consequences in the world, but your choice to do that changes you, it shapes you, who you not just the things you do, not just the things you say. Every thought you have changes you and determines who you are in the future, who you will be in the future. So that's an important thing to understand. Uh, you trying to act rightly and not act wrongly you're limited by the, the wisdom that you possess in the moment, which is the result of causes and conditions. So, there's absolutely no point in blaming yourself or blaming somebody else for being what they are in the moment and, and doing what they do. There's absolutely no point at all. The thing that's important is the present. The present is the place that you can generate the thoughts and the actions and so forth that make the future you something different. The present is with somebody else rather than judging them for what they're doing. For whatever reason, whatever's going on in their mind, and we can include Adolf Hitler and anybody else you want in this, you know, think of your favorite serial killer. <laughs> The thing is that they are what they are, and it's not fixed. They became what they are as a result of causes and conditions, and they have the potential to become something different. And so that's the place to come from. And you aren't different from other people. When we're talking about right action, okay, um, it's not just things that cause harm to other people, it's things that cause harm to yourself in a whole variety of different ways. And it's, the place we usually come from is I am more important than the rest of you. And we're not trying to get to a place where, no, the rest of you are more important than me. We're trying to get to a place where you see that I and you, we're all part of the same thing. We're all interconnected. And the attitude that we want to cultivate in terms of our actions is like the attitude of a loving mother towards her children. 
multiple children, not one child, multiple children. How does how does a loving mother treat her children? They're fighting. They're they're ready to tear each other's eyeballs out. And does the mother pick one and and say, well, this is the one I care the most about, so I'm going to take care of this one, and I don't care what happens to that one? Not really. No. The mother's concern is what's best for all of her children, and that's where we want to get to the place where we make our decisions. What's best for all of us? Not what's best for me, but also not what's best for you. It's as far as I can see the picture, as big a picture as I can see, what's the best for all of us? That's that's the way, that's where you want your decisions to come from. That's where you want to get with this. Is that place where that's that's the basis for your decision. But you're always going to be limited by your wisdom. We don't have infinite wisdom. We're not omniscient. We can only see so far in any direction, and we can only project so far in the future, and so we have a limitation. And, yeah, so, so we're going to make mistakes. But the point is to, to do the best that you can, to try to increase, to grow in wisdom. And uh, to the extent that you grow in wisdom today, well, you're a wiser person tomorrow, and you'll make better choices. In the vein of, of not killing, not harming, um, there are, and also going to the idea that pain is inevitable and suffering is not, um, there, there are a lot of acts that people do that are, are really sort of painful to themselves. Yes. Um, and, and intentionally so. Yes. I mean, I, I would probably be a pretty good example of that. <laughs> <laughs> where does where does that fit in into to not harming? I mean, is this is this going to say that um, you know I know that this is going to be painful, but I'm not going to suffer over this? You know, as, as a matter of fact, I you know I'm actually really pleased with the result. And yeah, I mean, you you did this because it was also a positive <coughs> side, a benefit, right? As a matter of fact, uh, you know, uh, cures are often painful, but you know, we don't hesitate to uh, either inflict the pain or to endure the pain for the sake of, uh, of the cure. So it's always there's always this question of uh, you know there's harm but there's benefit, and you 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 know you can't see. All the ramifications, either good or bad, of anything that you do. So you have to go by the ones that you can see. But you chose to to use your body as a canvas for artwork because there was some benefit that you perceived from it. And so you made the decision and said, "Well, yeah, there's a pain, but then then there's there's some happiness too." And so you know, I look at the two, and you. Know, and you might have decided afterwards, oh, I wish I'd never done that. <laughs> but at the time, that was the basis of your decision, right? Is there, I guess I want to ask, is there, is there a, a limit to which that becomes mm, destructive? I mean, you know, saying, saying, okay, you know, I, this, this thing is, is painful to me, but it's not going to kill me. I know, and I know that, you know, it's, it's, in a, it's in a circumstance that is controlled. And I, is there... Is there a point at which that becomes, you know, unhealthy in the mind? You know, is this, is, you know, can this be become a negative thing? I'm not sure I understand that. That, oh, take, you know, uh, is it is it more wrong to to be living in that, you know, say like somebody has that as more of a lifestyle, and they they are living in a place where you know they they want inflicted on them, you know, and it's not going to do permanent damage or anything, but it seems like it's a lot of unnecessary suffering, you know, is, is there a, a... You're talking about somebody who's behaving masochistically? Yeah. Well, you know, once again, it's the same thing as, this is a trade-off, I mean, your classical masochist gets pleasure 
gets a kind of pleasure from the physical pain they experience. You know, and even, uh, you know, there, there are some people who, uh, they're kind of a self-hatred, and so they'll slash themselves with razors or burn themselves with cigarettes or things like that. But if you examine what's going on inside them, you know, there's a payoff. And, uh, yeah, it can be really tough. The, the point is, if you look at somebody that's doing that, there's a pleasure and, and there's a cost, but you but you examine it and, and you say, well, but this is coming from a lot of ignorance. There's a much better way, you know. There's a better way to uh, obtain uh, the pleasure. And actually, you know, in the case of somebody that slashes themselves with a razor, there's kind of self hatred. So it's coming from aversion. They're getting the pleasure of punishing their body because they hate themselves. And anybody would look at that and say. That's really pretty ignorant. That's not good. Yeah, and that's no different than uh, than than somebody that hurts other people because they get pleasure out of it. You know, it's the same dynamic. They're causing harm for for the sake of their own selfish pleasure. The person that does that is quite obvious. Okay, he thinks his pleasure is more important than the pain that he causes other people. A little bit harder, you have to look a little more closely to see, well, this part of this person's mind thinks that the pleasure and satisfaction that it gets from this is uh, more important and more valuable than, than the, the, the pain and suffering and the harm that the other part of this person endures. And it's a person, somebody that slashes themselves has divided themselves down the middle. There's this part, I hate me, and I'm going to make me suffer. It's the same dynamic, and all the same principles apply. That, uh, as a matter of fact, usually we have to go the other way to understand that if, if I hurt you, it's really like my right hand hitting my left hand with a hammer. You know, it's really it's harder to see that, but <laughs> but it, it is it is the same thing. So if we know that the reason that we commit wrong actions that would cause harm, harm and kill uh, is coming from desire and aversion, and the desire and aversion are coming from ignorance, and we know that, that they're, they're the cause of our suffering, then the biggest favor that we can do for ourselves is get to the root of it and change those roots. And then we'll no longer commit the wrong actions and cause the unnecessary harm and so forth. What we do have in all of this, the guideline, the closest thing to a divine moral principle that we can get and that we need, is that there is enough unavoidable pain in the world as it is. By unavoidable, I mean there's no way around it. Sorry, not pain. So therefore, to be the cause of any unnecessary and avoidable pain and suffering, we can label that as wrong. If it's unnecessary. If, if what we do increases the net amount of pain and suffering above what would be there anywhere, anyway, then it's clearly wrong, right? It's clearly wrong. And that gives us the only moral standard that we need, that we can use to judge everything. And, and once again, keeping in mind, we're not omniscient. Our actions can have consequences that we can't foresee, both good and bad. But, but the best as we can, from the point of view that we are, is, is this an act that is increasing the pain and suffering in the world, beyond the unavoidable baseline, then I probably shouldn't do it. And the, the positive side of that is, is this an act that can reduce some of the pain and suffering, some of the unnecessary pain and suffering, and move the total closer to the unavoidable baseline, then it's the right thing to do. So this, this is the kind of standard that we want to apply. This is our, 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 our root principle, and of course, we know we're going to make mistakes, but you know, you know you're doing 
the best thing that you can do, so long as you can use that particular criteria to to make your decision. Yeah. Everybody knows you free to leave because of bell ring, right? Oh. All right, go ahead. Yeah. What about the person who's um, inflicting self-harm through cutting as a way to um, buy themselves time to deal with their desire for suicide, so to avoid killing themselves altogether. They're choosing something that's less harmful with the hopes of being able to not kill themselves. Well, th that brings us sort of into the realm of the, the lesser of evils. Right? Um, and in that particular instance, since the person that they're cutting and the person that they would kill is, is the same person, then if that's their motivation, it's the lesser of two, two evils. Uh, but it's always bigger than that. that. That person who does the cutting has parents and siblings and friends, and both the suicide and the cutting uh, cause suffering for others as well. So. Uh, even when we get into the lesser of two, uh, making a choice of the lesser of two evils, we still want to try to take the biggest picture into account. So I, I mentioned that because somebody who, you know, to you it may look like, you know, uh, that, yeah, of course, if, if somebody can cut themselves and it keeps them from reaching that point where they, they instead of, slashing the skin on their thigh, they cut their throat or something like that, and it's a good thing. But that person might make the decision, oh, it'll be far better if I just slip my throat and get this all over with once and for all. But and from you as the outsider, the reason that you thought the cutting was better than the suicide is probably because whether you thought about it or not, you realize, okay, the suicide, there's... There's no, there's no hope of getting well. And the suicide is going to cause much more pain and suffering. I mean, the, the mother of a young woman that does this is, the day she dies, going to blame herself for why I didn't, why didn't I see this, why couldn't I have done something, blah, blah, blah. There's a lot of pain and suffering in, in the suicide. So, you know, in any decision, there are a lot of things to be weighed. And, and the more we learn, the harder it's going to be to really evaluate. And the one example that I always like to, a made-up story that, you know, and, uh, uh, I don't know what the exact year would be, but it would probably be sometime in the 1890s on the streets of Vienna. There's a runaway horse and carriage, and there's this pregnant woman who is looking in the wrong direction, doesn't know she's about to be run down. And so a kindly, helpful gentleman reaches over and pulls Mrs. Schickelgruber out of the way of the runaway character. You, you can't know the consequences of your action, but you make the best decision you can at the time. When you're just acting out of ignorance and selfishness and desire and aversion, you're, you're going to make a lot of wrong decisions. And not only that, when you make those decisions, you are going to, the, the person that you are tomorrow is going to be somebody who is even more ignorant or more subject to desire and aversion than the person that you were today. Yeah. Okay. Um So I got into Krishnamurti way back when, and so he has a whole thing where he's trying to like really get you identify not as much with the content, but any. So he has like I watched a YouTube the other day and it was like uh, analysis is paralysis. You know, you know where I'm gonna go with this? He's like he sort of talks about how like the thing that's doing the perceiving, or more like the thing we identify with is our content, mm -hmm. and it's the source of distortion. And he's like, whenever you try to fix yourself with your source of distortion, he's like, that's never going to work. He's like, that's that's like the whole concept of trying to fix yourself and analyzing yourself like you're identified. 
with a story that, that already is, is illusory. And you're, you're trying to use that story to understand. Anyway. Let me make it clear here. There is a place for analysis. It is an important thing to do, but that's not really what we're talking about here. We're talking about mindfulness. We're talking about becoming aware of what you're doing, why you're doing it, and using whatever degree of wisdom and understanding you've accumulated to determine whether or not it's what you want to be doing. Okay, I, totally, yeah, I totally see that. It just yeah. seems like there's an element of analysis where when we're talking, we're like, you should do this better. Yeah. Well, analysis serves that, and that's especially the case where we're learning from our mistakes. And that's why an important part of mindfulness, mindfulness doesn't end when you've made the decision and acted. As a matter of fact, it's just beginning there, because you want to be aware of the consequences on the world and the consequences on yourself, of your actions. That's where analysis comes in. You see and you observe, and then at some point you might do a little thinking about it and make things clear and make a, make a judgment that leads you to act differently in the future. So analysis does have a place, but its place is really second to just pure being in the present, present moment, awareness, mindfulness, uh, paying attention to the things that need to be paid attention. Yeah. That's, that's where I come from, is like totally the mindfulness aspect. I definitely like, I never try to fix things or like analyze things because I feel like you're trying to defend it and it already happened. Yeah. You know what I mean? You're yeah. like, I don't need to defend it, but it, it is, and all I can do is create space around it. Wait and see. Yeah, that's right. And mindfulness is really important. But analysis, you know, one of the tremendous gifts that we have as human beings is our analytic capacity. And uh, it's true that we tend to overuse it. We try to to do everything with it, and that simply doesn't work. But uh, it still is an incredibly valuable tool, and we, and we should be using it. But really, I guess that's our problem. You know, I, I, I watched Deer and Birds, and, and um, they have so much more mindfulness than most human beings do. And one of the reasons, they, well, there are a whole lot of reasons why human beings are less mindful than they could be. But one of them, one of them is that we're so good at thinking, and everyone around us, our society, thinks thinking is such a great thing that we overthink and we try to solve everything with thinking, and it just won't work. Yeah, and like the, the first thing you try to do when you meditate is you try to tell the mind, the mind tries to use the mind to turn off, so the mind turn off. Yeah. And it's like the, then you could describe meditating as. <laughs> Learning to to stop thinking long enough so that you can become mindful. <laughs> and become mindful enough so that then when you start thinking again, you can think in much more useful and effective ways. <laughs> All right, well, I think that's enough for tonight. And then... Uh, We'll, we'll continue on, but uh, I, I guess we're not having anything next week. So I, I'll be here in two weeks, and uh, we'll pick up where we left off. So I'll be looking forward to hearing what you have to say about practicing mindfulness of uh, right action. And remember, and, and in particular, let's focus on actions that cause injury, other beings, but also right from the beginning, try to be equally aware of the actions that you commit that are beneficial to other beings, because that's the, the the opposite is is being beneficial, protecting the things you do to protect or help other beings, and so when you're being mindful of these, it's very important to be aware of and positively reinforce the good things you do. Because, you know, we focus a lot on our bad side, but we've got a good side. You don't just go around harming other beings 
uh, selfish motivations. You will also do things that are loving and helpful and generous and everything else. Be equally mindful of those things and hold them in contrast to the other kinds of things. And in the process of recognizing that you, you cause harm out of ignorance, desire, and aversion, recognize too that you do good things out of loving kindness and compassion, and that's as much a part of who you are as the other. And positively reinforce that. Thank you. Good night.